Well, friends, by way of introduction, I really don't have one. We are back today in the book of Romans. I'm going to assume some interest here. You are here this morning to hear from the Lord and to be ministered to by God himself through his word. You're here to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we hope occurs in this time. We are back now in the book of Romans in the fourth sermon in this series where Paul, now having greeted the saints in Rome and given his thesis statement of the letter regarding the gospel, is about to launch into his argumentation in Romans 1, 18 and following. Now, I said that I don't really have an introduction, but what I do plan to do in the next few moments is give us a, a summary of where we've been in Paul's letter to the Romans, even as you are opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. The first 15 verses that we considered over a couple of Sundays is Paul's greeting to the saints in Rome. Paul declares himself at the very beginning of the letter to be a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. He says that he has been called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. This gospel that is God's gospel, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel, God's gospel, concerns God's Son who descended from David according to the flesh and who was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit through His resurrection from the dead. This promised one is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And He is our Lord. It is through Him, says Paul, that the apostles received grace in their office in order to bring about faith in Christ among the nations. Paul then greets the saints in Rome with grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to express his gratitude to God for the saints in Rome on account of their faith. He reiterates how much he has longed to come and be with them. He wants to come, he says, so that he can impart some spiritual gift to them. And then he says, that is, what I mean is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul says that it is his calling to preach the gospel and plant churches among all the Gentiles that has kept him from coming to Rome thus far. And he ends his greeting by saying that he is eager to preach the gospel to the saints who are in Rome. Then in verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, Paul gives us what is effectively his thesis statement for the letter. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. For the gospel reveals a righteousness that God gives to sinners which He accepts. And that righteousness is entirely of faith. And now, Paul begins his argumentation. Let's look to it. Beginning in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. 
We will be considering Romans 1, 18 through 32 this morning. Let's read it together. Listen now. This is the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. We thank God for His Word today and every day. My plan this morning is to begin by making some overarching comments on Romans 1, 18 and following. Then we're going to consider verses 18 to 32 in three sections. And then finally, we will end our time with three additional points of doctrine and meditation. So we'll begin with some overarching comments regarding Romans 1, 18 and following. What I'm about to say is obvious to you. Verses 18 and following should be read in light of verse 17. Right? We understand and interpret Scripture in context. People rejoice over the letter of Romans in terms of how beautifully it hangs together, how logical the progression of thought is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verses 18 and following should be read in light of verse 17. In verse 17, Paul wrote that the only righteousness available to mankind in the sight of God is that which is received by faith. And beginning in verse 18, he sets out to prove that that is, in fact, the case. Paul is demonstrating, beginning in verse 18, that all men are under wrath and justly stand condemned. 
And so, there is no way of justification of being declared just in the sight of God except by grace, which the gospel holds out in Jesus Christ. There is no way of salvation except through the righteousness of Christ that is given by God in the gospel and is received by faith. So in other words, beginning in Romans 1.18, Paul is teaching where salvation is to be found and where it cannot be found. Nowhere except in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God revealed for the justification of sinners. This is important for our understanding. The first portion of Paul's argument does not conclude until chapter 3 and verse 20. Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is a cohesive piece of Paul's argument. This section beyond question shows that all men are in sin and therefore under wrath. This is so that it might be shown beyond question that if human beings are to be justified, it cannot be by a righteousness of their own, but only by the righteousness provided by God that is revealed in the Gospel. Paul launches into an argument that will not conclude until chapter 3 and verse 20 in which he demonstrates that the righteousness which is of the law, the righteousness that is of works, is not sufficient for the justification of any sinner. One thing to note before we jump into verses 18 to 32 more specifically. It seems that Paul primarily has the Gentiles in view in Romans 1, 18-32, though of course these verses are universally applicable. He will turn his attention more to the Jews beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, though he clearly writes to both Jew and Gentile in chapters 2 and 3. Now, let's consider verses 18-32 to 32 in three sections. First section, verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 to 20. The righteousness that God gives to sinners is revealed in the gospel. Verse 17. Verse 18. In stark contrast, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is his displeasure towards sin and his righteous vengeance against it. It's wrath. It's important that we understand this, that wrath is not an attribute of God. When we talk about attributes of God, holiness, righteousness, justice, love, mercy, grace, etc., those are inherent to his being, to his nature, Wrath is not a divine attribute in that way. 
It is not an emotion inherent to God's being. This qualification matters because for human beings, wrath is emotional. And it is almost always sinful. With God, wrath is an outflow of His holiness, righteousness, and justice in the face of sin and evil. We've said this many times. What kind of God would He be if He were not wrathful against sin and evil and wickedness? He would cease to be good. God's wrath is revealed from heaven, says Paul. It is poured out on the world against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of mankind. This is foundational to Paul's argument. All who are charged with ungodliness or unrighteousness are exposed to the wrath of God and therefore cannot claim God's favor on the basis of their own character or their own conduct. Mankind, in our wickedness, suppress the truth about God. All human beings are guilty of this. Paul is proving that all men, the nations, the Gentiles, all men can be charged with ungodliness, unrighteousness, and wickedness. Verses 19 and 20, he goes on. Creation, he says, declares that God exists. One cannot help but think of the words of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals His knowledge. The creation and the created order, as it were, gives a testimony to the existence of God. There is no speech, the psalmist says, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The created order testifies about God. And God has written His law into creation. It is a part of the fabric of the world that God has made. God has written His law into humanity. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Paul says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The law of God, the moral law of God, has been written into mankind, and it has been written into the world that God has made. All of this, the creation the created order that bear witness to God and the fact that the law of God has been written into that creation, all of that renders all men everywhere without excuse before the Lord. Now, this knowledge of God that comes through the creation and the created order, often referred to as general revelation of God, this knowledge is not the kind of knowledge that brings salvation. However, this knowledge of God is enough to take away any man's excuse for his unrighteousness and his rebellion. Second section, verses 21 to 23. Again, humanity knew 
or knows God through the witness of creation and through the law that is written into the human race and into the creation, yet humanity refuses to honor God as God. Humanity refuses to live in gratitude toward Him. People, says Paul, have foolish hearts that have been darkened. Human beings think that they are wise. They claim wisdom. They boast in it even. And in reality, they are fools. This is true of people from every nation, every class, every rank, from every time period. It's appropriate to look around at the world in which we live, the society in which we find ourselves these days, and say, you know, if our culture had a life verse, it's Romans 1.22. Thinking themselves wise, they became fools. That's, you know, metaphorically posted on the refrigerator of our culture. That's a fair observation, and I would offer that that has been an accurate observation to make in every era of human history. We, human beings, we go our own way. We do what seems good to us. We convince ourselves that it is entirely appropriate that we do so. We go our own way and do what seems good to us, all in the name of progress. All the while, we stumble around in blindness and foolishness. In all of humanity's claims to be wise, verse 23, people do not look up to heaven to worship the Creator, but rather look down to earth to worship creatures, ourselves included. You understand this? We worship, yes, idols of our own making. We worship created things, including ourselves, our pleasure, our cravings. This is the height of madness, the height of delusion. This is the height of ungodliness and unrighteousness that rather than looking to heaven to worship the Creator, we look down to earth and worship the creature. And it is, without doubt, a trampling of the majesty of God. Third section. We'll be in this one a little bit longer. Verses 24 to 32. Verses 24 to 32. For the rest of the chapter... Paul demonstrates that the wrath of God has, in fact, been revealed against mankind in this fallen world. This is something that has happened, friends. Sometimes you hear people, particularly in an American context, say, you know, guys, look out, United States. We need to be careful or God's going to do this. We need to be careful or God's going to give us over. With all due respect, this has happened. Paul is demonstrating that, in fact, the wrath of God has been revealed against mankind in this fallen world. The evidence of this is the fact that God has given mankind over to all kinds of wickedness and impurity. And the evidence of this corruption was so obvious, Paul simply appeals to the facts that his readers knew to be true. What Paul writes in this section of Romans is empirically verifiable. 
This is not up for debate. In verses 24 to 32, every human being, without exception, finds himself or herself in these verses. Every single one of us. God's wrath has been poured out from heaven. And it is evident in that this corruption is everywhere and everyone participates. Consider the words of John Calvin on these verses. He says, Paul here records those abominations which had been common in all ages and were at that time especially prevalent everywhere. It's 500 years ago. He goes on. Paul recites a catalog of vices in some of which the whole race of man were involved. For though they all were not murderers or thieves or adulterers, yet there were none who were not found polluted by some vice or another. For though every vice, as it has been said, did not appear in each individual, yet all were guilty of some vices, so that everyone might separately be accused of manifest depravity. Brief word of explanation before we begin looking at verse 24. God gives us over in His justice and then in His wrath against sin. God gives us over to our lusts and our cravings. He leads us to ourselves and to our own devices. And by we, I mean the human race. You understand that? We have these lusts, and these cravings as a result of the fall, as a result of original sin. And we inherit a corrupt nature that is inclined toward evil. Every aspect of our personhood has been corrupted by sin. And God has so arranged things in the world that we are led and carried into all manner of sin through our cravings and our lusts and our passions, as well as the work of the evil one. And in all of this, God is not the author or the cause of sin. Our hearts are a wellspring of evil. Verses 24 and 25. Note the therefore at the beginning of verse 24. What comes next in verses 24 and 25 is tethered to the idolatry of humanity that has been discussed and exposed by Paul. God, he says, has given men up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is sexual immorality, friends. There's not a lot of comment needed here. It is not insignificant, and it's not accidental, that as Paul begins to describe the corruption of mankind, he goes to where our corruption shows up perhaps first and most obviously, in the ways that we conduct ourselves when it comes to our sexuality. People hear this. People have cravings that are wrong. We have desires that are wrong, and we act on them. This has always been true of the human race. It's a universal indictment. Verse 25, 
This is because he's going to continue to ground. You're going to notice this pattern. He continues to ground all of this in our rebellion against the Lord. This is because human beings exchange the truth about God for a lie. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. As we've said, we worship idols of our own making and we worship ourselves. We live for our passions and for our pleasures. In our estimation, we are good and our desires are good. And if God exists and He is good, so man thinks He'll agree with us. He'll see it the same way. And if He doesn't, got no need for Him. Such is the depth of our wickedness. Verses 26 and 7. Note again, for this reason, verse 26, What comes next in verses 26 and 7 is grounded in the fact that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than God. The text says God has also given us over, the human race over, to dishonorable passions, women having relations with women and men with men. And Paul says this is contrary to nature. What Paul means is that this is contrary to God's good design. This is contrary to how God made men and women how we were made in His image to function. This is contrary to what is natural in God's good created order. Sadly, these things that Paul is talking about are normal and even natural in a fallen world. Track with me. It's important that we get this right. As fallen creatures in a fallen world, we have all kinds of natural desires that are wrong. You understand this? This is because of sin. This is because of the corruption of our nature. We do not naturally desire what is good or right. We naturally desire things that are wrong and evil. The fact, because the reason I'm saying this is because you hear this rhetoric all over the place these days. The fact that a desire or a craving is natural to us does not for one second make it good or even okay. You know this. Is no longer equals ought in a fallen world. In a Genesis 3 world, the way things are is no longer the way things ought to be. evident in the ways that we conduct ourselves and the cravings that we have that God has given us over to the lusts of our hearts to impurity and that he has given us over to dishonorable passions. Verses 28 to 32, let's look to those now. Note at the beginning of verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God at the beginning of verse 28, what comes next in verses 28 to 32 is grounded in that. You've noticed this pattern. God, says Paul in verse 28, has given us over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So we do what ought not to be done and we don't do what ought to be done. We have minds that are twisted and inclined toward all evil, as has been said. 
Verses 29 to 31 describe many of the things that we are full of in our corrupted, fallen state. Just reading this list is gripping. It is a grieving commentary on the state of humanity. And at the same time, some of the things that are on this list seem so pedestrian to us. They're so simple. Look at these verses. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We could expound upon each of these. The fact that you constantly battle wanting what your neighbor has and envying what your neighbor has, it's wickedness. The fact that you have malicious thoughts, thoughts toward people where you actually desire their harm, not their good, it's from hell. They are gossips. That's one of those... I don't often speak like this, but that's one of those, if you can't say amen, say ouch. We all are guilty. We speak in ways that we shouldn't. We're instructed in God's Word to speak in ways that build up, not tear down. It is obvious that we are all, in our humanity, liable to the fires of hell for the ways that we speak. We're slanderers. We speak poorly. We're told we're not to bear false witness. We should defend our neighbor at every turn. We should speak well, but instead we slander. We're haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful. Not only are our minds and hearts inclined toward all evil, we invent it. We come up with ways to be wicked. Then this disobedient to parents. It's good that that's in there. Again, pedestrian. Because you think, well, what child has not been disobedient to his mom or dad? Exactly. That's the point. To be disobedient to your parents, to not respect and submit to authority, is wickedness. We're foolish, faithless, Heartless, ruthless. Sobering. Looking toward verse 32, it does not get any better. In fact, if possible, it gets worse. How bad are we? You see it. How corrupt are we? Not only are we characterized by all of the things that we've been considering, Lust of our flesh to impurity, dishonorable passions, and this entire list of things that Paul has now cataloged, we're not bothered by them. In fact, we give approval of such conduct. We condone and at times even applaud wickedness. Again, verse 32 is empirically verifiable. Open your eyes and look around. Not only are we wicked in what we do, We celebrate it. We condone it. We justify it away. God's moral law, that law of nature, that law of creation, it shows up again in verse 32. Do you see it? You see it. Though they know God's decree that people who do such things deserve to die, humans know the law of God. 
We can't escape the law of God. It is written into us and into the world we inhabit, and everybody is on a denial project. And the depth of our wickedness is demonstrated in that even though we know the truth of God's law deep down, we break it and we approve the breaking of it. Like, Brother, this is not a lot, it's not very hopeful. It's not a very good presentation of the human race. I agree with you. Paul knows what he's doing. Remember, he's teaching us where salvation is to be found and where it will never be found. Which brings us to three additional points of doctrine and meditation. Number one, our corruption runs deep. It runs much deeper than we ever care to admit. Every aspect, as I said earlier, of our personhood has been affected by sin. Just brief side note. That's what we mean when we even use a theological term like total depravity. The depravity that we have, that we have inherited, is total in that every aspect of our personhood is corrupted. We are not utterly depraved. We're not as bad as we could possibly be because of God's restraining grace, but we are totally depraved in that sense. Our hearts, as John Calvin and is at least urban legend, and he did say, our hearts are idol factories, right? We produce idols to worship in our hearts. The human heart, in other words, is a wellspring of every kind of evil. And God, in his justice, gave us over to our corruption. Now, do not get it twisted. Our cravings and our passions, our wickedness and all of our sinning springs forth from our corrupt hearts. I said it earlier, I'm going to say it again. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then this, Mark 7, 20-23. And he said, that he is Jesus. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person, close quote. One may be sitting there and asking, all right, well, what about temptation? Temptation, you understand, is an occasion for sin. Temptation does not cause anyone to sin. It simply lures and entices out of us what was already there in our flesh to begin with. James 1, 13-15 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation is an occasion for sin. And oftentimes, this is for free, oftentimes our virtue is simply a lack of temptation, an absence of temptation. We ought not think more highly of ourselves than we should. Second point of doctrine and meditation here. I want us to consider more our condition as fallen human beings and what that's going to mean for righteousness if we're ever going to have it. What we're about to consider is applicable to every single human being hearing the sound of my voice. Believer, unbeliever, doesn't matter. Adam, the first human being, was our representative. We sinned in him. Like We are guilty in Him. He did, by the way, what we would have done. And so in Him, we fell from a state of righteousness and innocence and grace, right relationship with God, right? We fell from that state of righteousness and innocence into a state of death and corruption and wickedness. We are no longer naturally in right relationship with God, but in fact are at enmity with Him. We have inherited Adam's corruption. We're now dead in our sins, and we are enslaved to our cravings and our passions. We follow the course of a sinful world. We're like a piece of debris on a stream, just being taken wherever the world goes. We're following the evil one, who is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is our default setting as sons and daughters of Adam. We are not righteous. We do not have understanding. We do not seek for God. We have turned each one of us to our own way, and together we become worthless. Not a single one of us does good, not even one. Out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. And our speech is full of deception and manipulation and curses and bitterness. We are quick to hurt other people. We walk the path of ruin and misery. We don't know peace. We don't fear God. And so, of course, the wrath of God is against people like us, naturally. So what hope Could there be for people like that? It is only. It it is not that you will pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do some kind of moral 180 and thereby please the Lord. It is not that. It is only that we would have another representative. We had Adam as our representative. The only hope is that we would have another representative. One who is truly man in order to represent us but one who is not like us in our corruption and sin. One who could take our corruption and sin and guilt and shame upon himself and make satisfaction for it. One who could do all of that, who could bear that heavy load so that we don't have to bear it anymore. One who could stand 
before the wrath of God and shield us from it. One who could actually earn eternal life through what He did. One who could fulfill all of the righteous requirements of God's law. One who could take our dirty, filthy clothes and then clothe us in robes of His perfect righteousness. One who through death could conquer the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. One who through all of that could lead out a host of captives, having bound the strong man. One who could set us free, those of us who through the fear of death had been subject to lifelong slavery. One who having done all that, invites us to come to Him so that we might find rest for our souls. One who having done all that is not ashamed of us, but is delighted to call us brothers. The Gospel is the message of such a representative, of such a Redeemer, The Gospel reveals the righteousness of Christ that God gives to sinners through faith. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Reason with me, says the Lord. This will happen. Jesus was made to be sin, though He knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Accept, receive, and rest in Him alone for your justification. That in Him, represented by Him, God looks at you and says, just. Accept, receive, and rest in Him for your sanctification. That you have been united to Him, that His Spirit is at work in you to conform you into His image, and that He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Accept, trust, rest, receive from Christ alone eternal life on the basis of God's covenant of grace, not on the basis of your works or your striving or your effort. Point three, I want to speak particularly to the saints, to the believers, even most pointedly who make up Covenant Baptist Church. Remember this. Our corrupt flesh is still with us this side of the resurrection. You don't need me to tell you that. Its cravings, its desires, its thoughts. How many times do we wake up? How many times in the middle of a day does a thought occur to us? Does a desire spring up within us? Does a craving come from within that latches onto us 
And we think, where did that come from? How many times do we wake up and as soon as we're aware of how we're doing, we don't like it and we're grieved by it. We find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do. We neglect to do the things that we want to do. And again, we are grieved and we are troubled by this. When we want to do good, we find that evil lies close at hand. And that as much as we delight in God's law in our inner man, there is another law in our flesh waging war against our spirit. And all of this prompts us to cry out with Paul, the author of this letter, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? All right, pause. If this, what I've just been saying, is an accurate description of every saint in this room, which it is. Two questions for you. On this side of the new birth, I'm talking regenerated, born again, on this side of the new birth, where is our righteousness found? Number two, on this side of the new birth, where is our salvation? Remember what Paul is doing in this letter. In particular, what he's doing beginning in this section, Romans 1, 18 and following. He is teaching his readers, he's teaching us where salvation is to be found and conversely, where it will not be found. If we look for righteousness or salvation in ourselves, beloved, we will not find it. If we look for righteousness or salvation in anything that we can do, or abstain from doing, we will not find it. Righteousness and salvation today and every day is found in one place, in one person. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. His obedience for us as our obedience. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. We're going to get there. What does that mean? It means that we, by faith, are seen by God to be as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. His death for us as our death. In Christ, I died to the law. What does that mean? It means that I'm a lawbreaker who deserves to die. And in Him, I did. I died to the law. That penalty has been absolutely paid. And so I am no longer under the penalty of the law. It no longer threatens or condemns. His resurrection for us guaranteeing our resurrection. I was driving to church this morning, mindful of good things in life, mindful of people I love, and mindful of the fact that we're all perishing. God be praised that Christ got up from the grave and that He defeated the one who has the power of death. God be praised for His compassion that because the children share in flesh and blood, He partook of the same things so that He might liberate those who have been subject to lifelong slavery, the fear of death. Oh, how we need Christ. May we never get it confused, right? That on this side of the new birth, well, now it's, yeah, it's Jesus, but it's kind of me. Nonsense. 
You see, beloved, the difference between the church and the world is not that we are without sin. It's not that we have a righteousness of our own. The difference is that we know who and what we are. Namely, sin-sick wretches who have been forgiven, who have been absolved, and who have been given a righteousness only on account of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, we belong wholly to Him. We are not our own. We have been bought at a price. We are united to our Lord and Savior. We are set free by Him and in Him. We are enabled by His Spirit to live in Him and unto Him and for the good of our neighbor. All of this to the praise of God's glorious grace. Salvation will never be found if we look to ourselves. Salvation will only ever be found in Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners. In Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it's in his name that we will pray. So please join me.